Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all for making it. We're going to be the number one media conglomerate in the world. The key here is act like a happy family. We're the Osbournes, and I'm Daddy fucking Warbucks, okay? I always wanted one of you kids to take over. People would do well to remember there's going to be a new sheriff in town. Here's to us. Hello and welcome back to Still Watching Succession, the unofficial podcast about the HBO series Succession. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Each week on this podcast, we break down the latest episode. We, today we are discussing season two, episode seven, The Return, written by Jonathan Glazer and directed by Becky Martin. But first, Richard and I are going to do what we love to do, which is rank... The Roys. We're going to run down uh, where the Roys stand after this episode, which is the one where the family goes to London and maybe see some theater. Um, <laughs> so we, we like to start at the top and end at the bottom. So, Richard, why don't you kick us off? Who is the winningest... Roy family or Roy family adjacent uh, person in this week's episode. Uh, well, it's the uh, it's the character played by the only person on the show who has been nominated for acting Oscars twice in one year. That'd be Holly Hunter, nineteen ninety three. 
the piano and the firm. Uh, and of course she plays Rhea on, on this season. And it's such a great turnaround from, um, the last episode to this, because at the end of last episode, she had just been fired by Cherry Jones. The whole deal she was trying to secretly orchestrate had fallen through. And I don't know. I kind of thought she might be down for the count, but I never, I should not have underestimated, uh, both the character, but also the fact that they, they're not going to just, you know, get rid of Holly Hunter after a couple episodes. And she came roaring back this week with a really, um, the more you think about it, really devious plan, uh, to get, uh, her, I guess, main competition now that she's kind of subtly thrown her hat in the ring out of the way in the form of Shiv. Yeah. So we see, uh, her working it from a few different angles, right? There's, first of all, she just happens to find her way on the plane, uh, to London with Logan, um, you know, claiming that she's just there to see some theater. Um, while she's on the plane, she sort of talks about the various kids as possible, uh, contenders and sort of subtly negs them all to Logan. Right. Um, and then she stays over, I believe with Logan. So that is a thing that she does. And she offers to help him with his quote unquote Shiv problem, which is, you know, she sort of lays his trap for Shiv very subtly. And, um, the, and she falls for it. So the, you know, the boys see her as possibly just another sexual conquest for their father. And, you know, this is, this is, I think, the most information we've gotten about Logan and his, like, you know, sexual practices. There have been some implications, like the fact that he's on his, what, at least third, maybe fourth wife. Um, and in the opening credits, there's that shot of what looks like a young Shiv, maybe noticing her father talking to someone that perhaps he shouldn't. Um, so, you know, this is, this is, a, I guess, a thing that Logan does. And Rhea has sort of seen that way forward for herself as an opportunity in the company. Yeah. Okay. And the ingenious way that she, and, and it's ingeniously mean way that she hooks Shiv is she dangles the possibility of being CEO of a different media company and one that presumably aligns much better with Shiv's at least outward political ideologies and ideals. And so she almost gives Shiv this glimmer of hope that maybe she could actually go somewhere that would do something good. And then it turns out it was all just a canard to get, to give her father a reason to break off the deal that she was going to, you know, inherit the the title. I love, I love your use of the word canard. It's a very, I think succession kind of word. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to me. Um, the other thing that she offers Shiv, and we will get to Shiv eventually, uh, spoiler alert, way further down the list, but, um, something that Shiv says to her in that lunch that they have is, um, you know, basically I've landed myself in a place where what does my father think is sort of ruling my life, which is exactly where Logan wants to be, right? Taking up space 24 seven in everyone's head. Um, and so Shiv, Shiv basically concedes that, in the first episode of the season, she, in believing her father, she gave him this power over her and now she's frustrated. And so part of what Ray is offering Shiv is a way out of that too. If you're, if you're CEO of Pierce, I mean, it's a fuck you to your father and you don't have to worry in quite the same way, at least what he's thinking in any given moment, you know, so. Yes. Yeah. So it was this promise of, of freedom and, and, and sort of, um, you know, a transcendence of this kind of, you know, down and dirty company, 
Uh, and yeah, it was just, I think that was like Rhea was, it was a brilliant strategy on the, her part. Um, I also think that I, I like Rhea being at the top of this list. Um, because I think this was the episode for me where Holly Hunter's performance really felt like she'd settled into it. You know, yeah. at first it was like, I couldn't just not see the Holly Hunter in it. But now I think, you know, I think the writers, maybe as they went sort of figured out how to better write for her and, and really figured out who this character was. Um, and, and I think it, yeah, I just, I think she just really connected in this episode, um, in a way that I was, it was really exciting. Uh, so crucial to Rhea's ascendancy in this episode was the next person on our list. And who is that Joanna? Oh, well, that would be Mr. Logan Roy, mm-hmm. uh, who had a bad week last week, but seems back on top and like back on top in a way where, um, I mean, you know, he's still, he's lost Pierce. He's still sort of being pursued. He has to go to London to ensure that he has the votes he needs so that Stewie, uh, can't, you know, turn the whole board against him. His ex-wife uh, is one possible voter there. And then there's this other figure that he has to go court. And we don't even see him do that. We just assume that he did a good job, and I'm sure he did. Um, oh, that's right. We don't most- see that after there's kind of a bit of build up to it, too. <laughs> I know. But uh, maybe they're just saving to, like, figure out who to cast as this shadowy figure um, at a later date. But, um, but, you know, what we do see him do is take really take some petty and vicious revenge on Kendall. He's vacillating a lot between being protective of Kendall. And then this is like, cause I feel like for most of this season, despite the fact that last season ended with him absolutely quashing Kendall for most of the season, he's been fairly protective of Kendall, just being like, you're right here under my, under my thumb. And you're going to be useful to me. But this was just a real uh, dig and a reminder. And it's and it's came, I think, because he saw Kendall sort of being his own person. He, you know, has Naomi Pierce over for a sleepover. He implies that Logan might be making a fool of himself with Rhea. And Logan responds by saying, hey, why don't you come with me to visit the family of, of this waiter that you got killed? uh last season or were involved in the death of let's say and um i'm like worried about being sued for, <laughs> for slander or libel <laughs> of a um a fictional character anyway um come with me uh come inside you know just like slowly just pushing him to an absolute pain uh spot and you know kendall walks away just once again broken yeah because i think and i think that the the brilliant shift in that scene once logan has processed you know who his son is seeing um and also what his son just said to him about Rhea, um is just this like he, he's just basically saying like oh you think that we're like back talking to each other as like like as like normal or or not as peers ever but like you know something closer to and he just was like like wants to remind him like i'm i'm like covering up a murder for you and so you never get to do anything you want ever again exactly right um and that's like a pretty brutal way to treat your own child um and kendall gets treated rather brutally by both of his parents in this episode which brings us to our number three uh spot on this list richard who do we have 
the woman, you know, one of many women I want to be on the show, Caroline Collingwood, <laughs> who lives in some manor house and cooks her own food despite her vast wealth. Um, or I guess it's implied that she made that meal herself, right? It wasn't, yeah. some, there wasn't some cook scurrying away in the background. Um, no. But, you know, she knew instantly that her children were not there just for a social visit, and uh, she cut right to the, the quick. And she got a financial victory, you know, in this by agreeing to, you know, not uh, throw her shares over to the opponent um, in terms of a $20 million, you know, readjustment of the divorce settlement. Um, but she got the, the sort of emotional territorial victory in, in, in getting the kids to, 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 she got Christmas basically. And I don't think that has anything to do with her really wanting to spend time with the kids. I think that there's a brilliant moment in this episode where Kendall, you know, comes home from this completely shattering thing that his father has made him do. And he just wants to talk to his mom. He wants to get some measure of comfort just by saying it out loud. And, you know, Caroline has been so like, oh, you guys are, are so, you, you're, you know, you never come to visit me. You always want something. You're always taking your dad's side. And that's probably true. But you also see how she kind of just kind of dismisses them. You know, um, she's very sort of like, oh, I mean, I am tired, but no, of course I want to hear it. I want to hear it. Like her son is clearly like really upset. So I think it's a, in a short scene, it's a really great, um, full body visualization of this character. Uh, yeah, I have, I have been in love with, uh, Dame Harriet Walter, uh, since, um, I'm, I might have come late to it actually, but for me, it's Angley's Sense and Sensibility. Mm. Uh, she plays this monstrous character, Fanny Dashwood, um, who has this great scene where she slowly convinces her husband that, you know, to basically stiff his sisters in this like settlement of an estate. And I, <laughs> but she just has this like, delicious accent and waves and way of talking. And, um, in sense of sense of, in Angley's sense of sensibility, she has this line reading where she goes, I didn't think you meant money. <laughs> it's just like so chewy. And she has a similar line reading here where she's just like, I'm a bit tired for home truths. <laughs> and you're just like, it's so chilly, but, but at the same time, she's like, Oh no, go ahead. No, no. If you want to, we'll do it. Go ahead. You know, she's not like, sh- she has like plausible deniability and then she just scoots the next morning. There's also this really interesting thing that this episode does with, with this character and food. So she has this reputation for, you know, being kind of stingy when it comes to how she serves a dinner. Um, and, uh, there's a similar, you know, she, she serves, Logan kind of goes, poor you guys, you're going to eat terribly, you know, and she serves them some pigeon and she has all this, you know, I, I didn't think anyone would be hungry. I'm not. And that's mm-hmm. like, for me that, uh, you know, I don't, I don't mean to apply my English major over reading uh, tendencies into this, but like, you know, maternal forces are usually like the source of like nourishment and comfort and stuff like that. And for them to have her be, so stingy in that regard, I think is like a commentary on how she's not that for them. And then for in that scene, kitchen scene with Kendall, for her to be eating and not, and not giving anything to him, but just eating for herself and eating in a distracted manner where she's not paying attention to him. She's just like grazing and snacking. And then the next morning Roman comes in and he's like, are we getting like, you know, some kind of egg dishes. She makes like eggy pigs or something like that. And she's just gone and it's mm-hmm. not there to make breakfast for them. And I'm like, I, I feel like that has to be some sort of intentional portrait of, of this maternal figure. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that, uh, the sort of 
mild decorum she tries to show Kendall by saying, no, 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 tell me, like, is sort of reflective of a scene earlier this year when, you know, they're trying to get, uh, someone to talk to Logan for them. And they're like, well, I mean, I guess I could do it, but oh, well, you know, but maybe you should. And I think it, these people all, because they travel in high society circles, they have to have some level of like tact and politesse, you know, to get, to get by in that world to sort of, you know, thrive in that world. Um, and so it's just always interesting to see them sort of wearily being like, oh, right. I can't be just an outright monster. So what, what, what is it? You know, <laughs> like, yeah. I just think these people are forever just itchy under the skin of decency. Yeah. And it's, it's to your earlier point about why she tries to go for this whole Christmas deal. It's so clear that she does not actually want to spend any time with her children. Like when Kendall needs her the most, she's snacking and tired and not interested. Right. Oh dear. But like when, um, but so then the Christmas deal is about her, ma- her making Logan admit that he'd rather have a piece of property than mm-hmm. his kids mm-hmm. and her just, you know, trying to score some points on him in that regard. And it's but while so, also hurting the children. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, yeah. Show, like, yeah. Show, show the kids how little their father cares for them and not because she wants them there. So yeah. Once again, I just really wish the, every episode I found myself really, really hoping my happy ending is that the, the three Roy children or four, sorry, um, the four Roy children band together. <laughs> just like, don't let their parents or anyone else treat them this way. If they just banded together, cause there are moments of solidarity, like there are moments of solidarity between Roman and Shiv in this episode as they have to go to this dinner together. Um, I'm thinking specifically of when they're in the, like, the food shop trying to get, you know, fuel up before this paltry dinner they're going to have. But like, then there's, but then Roman's an absolute asshole to shave in this episode as well. So it's just, it's, it's a never ending uh, nightmare, which brings us, I guess, to the next people on our list, which is a shared, a joint spot for our favorite quasi lovers of succession, uh, Roman Roy and Jerry, uh, Richard, why, why are Roman and Jerry so high up on our list this week? Well, because the, this this alluded to plan in an earlier episode sort of seems to be taking a little bit more shape, you know, in terms of like they're seeing where Shiv is faltering, where Kendall's faltering. They're scrambling t- to realign their strategy in the wake of the uh, Pierce deal falling through. And I think that Jerry realizes that despite, you know, Roman's unpleasant deeds or whatever or personality, he actually – in some ways it's the least liability of the, of the kids, you know, in a weird, like in terms of at least how Logan seems to be uh, directing his ire. Of course, there was the scene last week where Logan hit Roman and it was, you know, again, an implication that this is something that's been going on over the years uh, once in a while. And then there's that incredible scene between Logan and Roman in the car on the way to the plane where Logan is sort of apologizing, but also I think sort of just testing to see if Roman will just pretend like nothing's wrong. And you get this picture of someone who has been a victim of this for a long time, but like just sucks it up because he wants the the money, the power, you know, all that. And so I think that while there's a certain pity for, for Roman in that scene, there's also just kind of that same steady revulsion that we have with all of these characters where it's just like, well, they are willing to sublimate so much just to scramble to the top of this pile. Yeah. You know, um, 
and we'll get to to Kendall and, and Jeremy Strong and what he does best with that character, but um and this is a really good episode for him, but Roman, this is one of my favorite Kieran Culkin scenes so far of the series, and that is saying a lot, because I love Kieran in the series. And and I think we talked maybe a bit, or I think you and I have talked maybe a bit about how the character of Roman and Kieran Culkin's portrayal of him in season one, maybe at times felt like a little too glib and flip and whatever for the world that you know, we're inhabiting where people have a few more layers. And I feel like this season we're really stripping down to a few more of Roman's layers, mm-hmm. uh, specifically tied to this question of abuse and historical abuse. And for him being like, I don't, I'm not even sure what we're talking about, you know? And then Logan says, I don't think I even made contact. Did I? And he goes, Oh, I, uh, yeah, I, you know, it's just like, and he's using some of his father's tactics too, which I think is interesting. I was reminded of, you know, there's that scene, uh, at the end of Turnhaven when Shiv is trying to ask Logan, like, what happened? And he just sort of like mutters some syllables and looks out the window. <laughs> and that's exactly what Roman does in a few cases in this, in this scene where he just like mutters a few like nonsense syllables and then looks out the window mm-hmm. and then just goes buildings and cars everywhere or something like <laughs> yeah. that, you know? So, and like, I love just- that buildings and cars because like it would be a name no matter what, but the idea of just muttering inanely to Logan Roy yeah. Like, like you have to like make sure everything you're saying has a point, you know, and it's just like, oh, it was just, yeah, uh, yeah. excruciating. All right. So that brings us to, I mean, I, I think, uh, we're, we're slotting another pair here, right? Um, yeah. I mean, so, you know, it's Tom and Greg basically, and, right. um, it's hard to inseparable duo right on the one hand tom got greg to give up a lot of his secret little you know insurance policy documents that he had on on the whole cruise disaster um and the other greg did snatch a few away and did record something though tom whether he was aware of what greg was doing or just maybe just lives his life never really you know, speaking culpability out loud, you know, is, is, is basically doing that as rarely as he can. Um, so yeah, it's, I don't know. Who do you think kind of between those two came out a little bit on top? Cause it's not, there's not a big margin. I don't think. I would put Greg a little bit on top. Mm-hmm. He, he, uh, he tried a feeble shut up, uh, to push back on Tom, which, you know, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. got shut down pretty quickly, but you know, he tried it. <laughs> he tried. Uh, <laughs> um, Tom's best dig, I think, that he got in on Greg is he's like, you got your office, you hung your little Klimt poster. And I'm like, I can't think of a more biting uh, critique, yeah. honestly. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, their, their, their fates seem a little linked here, but some added info that we have about Tom, you know, Greg at least is like making friends and influencing people. This is something we've seen from him, uh, generally is that, um, Whereas Tom is like unfailingly awkward and only knows how to sort of wield what limited power he has in order to make it up the ladder. Greg genuinely knows how to win friends and influence people. And, um, we see him, you know, uh, Tom interrupts a like dinner party, whatever that, that Greg is having with some young colleagues at ATN. What does she and say? The woman, she's like, welcome to the next level or something. Yeah. The next wave or the something. The next wave. Was it like yeah. a, 
was, was maybe was that what they were calling their little like social group? Yeah, I think so. They're yeah. sort of like we're the young up and comers oh, at the company, yeah. uh, sort of thing. We're the future. You're the past. Um, so, so yeah, so, so that's what Greg is doing. Meanwhile, Tom has found himself in the crosshairs of, uh, you know, a, a tougher investigation than he was expecting, uh, into, what rate waste are Roy Co knew and when they knew it about the cruise ships. And he gets zero um affirmation from Shiv that he's not being hung out to dry here. You know? Yeah. She's and I think that Matthew McFadden is so good in that interrogation scene where, you know, we we've seen Tom do this before where he tries to little do a little hop, skip and a jump and, and, and not say anything while seeming like he's just kind of casual, easy breezy, you know, like sort of lie, you know, but the, the, the investigators are having none of it. I, I like, he's like, yeah, we can uh, dig that in more into that in a second. But, you know, after Tom gives some bullshit answer. And I, I think that was a really like fun scene. But between the two of these people, Nicholas Braun's scene in the bathroom where he's like testing, yeah. testing the recorder is like a fucking like minor masterpiece and just like weird, just energy acting. Like I just, I loved, I just love, cause he wasn't really saying anything, but it just felt like this kind of like almost virtuoso little, little aria that he was doing in that bathroom. Yeah. I hesitate to like repeat the word that is the sort of grace note of that aria, because it's not a word that I like to talk about unless we're talking about it seriously, but like it's, uh, yeah, it's quite the thing. And it takes you a second to figure out what he's doing. Right. Cause mm-hmm. he's testing, testing, uh, you know, the recording on his phone and, um, so yeah, I, I, I was really impressed with that whole thing as well. I mean, who hasn't been in a public bathroom and just said loudly, like, I have committed crimes, you know? Right. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the reviews director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Um, so, so that, yeah, so we'll, we'll slot Greg on top of Tom here, um, but right below Tom comes his beloved wife, who has no time for his drama, because she's got drama of her own. Uh, Shiv once again invites herself to a place that she has not been invited to, um, and, you know, inserts herself into this attempt to get, secure their mom's vote, um, but also, I guess she wrote some large memo manifesto that even Tom was like, uh, yikes a bit. <laughs> so, uh, let's talk about Shiv, Roy, and her, and her memo, uh, Richard. She just gets a shellacking in this episode. You know, yeah. um, she's still reeling from the accidental suggestion that her father's a dinosaur, um, which prompted her to write some sort of corporate memo, right? Basically that, yeah. um, a mission statement. <laughs> a mission statement that used a Gandhi and Amelia Earhart were those the two quotes they said. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then you have Rhea saying that Shiv is not as smart as she thinks she is. 
And it's just, you know, it, it's a real, like, it's almost bordering on, like, the way that they treat Meg on Family Guy. <laughs> like, like, why does the, the sister have to be so, um, beaten down? But, like, you kind of get that they're just establishing that she was so up earlier in the season and now so down. And that's just kind of how these things work. Um, but I think it, this episode really does deepen, um, the characterization of her because it would be too easy to have her be, like, the woman kind of speaking you know, sense to all these, you know, dumb grasping guys, but she, you know, she's, she's right there in the fray with them making mistakes and then having other successes, you know? So I don't know. I think while she's very down on our list this week, I think that my appreciation for the character and how she's drawn it has only increased. Yeah. And I think there's just some quiet moments specifically with other women in the cast. Like I'm thinking opposite Holly Hunter as Rhea and opposite Harriet Walter as, as, um, Caroline. And, and I really loved the Caroline Shiv stuff from the wedding last season. Like basically Caroline shows up for one episode a season, I'm guessing. And like is just fantastic, a fantastic insight into the fact, you know, it's not just Logan who has worked these children. Um, and so Shiv has this great line when Harriet uses the, uh, Britishism, like, shall I play mother? Meaning, should I pour? And Shiv says, yeah, go ahead, give it a go. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> like it's, you know, and, and I think Caroline says, ho, ho. Like it's all just so like, um, knives out, uh, at that dinner. And, um, but the ways in which Shiv has been let down, and undermined by her mother. And then sort of like, I think we saw her do this a bit. We were talking about this last week in the Jesse's episode where, um, Shiv has that conversation with Rhea and Rhea uses a phrase that Shiv then uses in a conversation with her father. So you see Shiv sort of thirstily soaking up Rhea as this example of like perhaps a woman in business that she can admire and emulate. And that's why the betrayal from Rhea maybe cuts even deeper, uh, for Shiv here. Yeah. Because like the, you know, we, we, we did see Nan Pierce smile a bit at Shiv when she was on the panel at our justies. Yeah. So there was a little bit like maybe there is actually a genuine appreciation there. Maybe Rhea wasn't a hundred percent lying, but yeah, the, the idea that like, not only does that Rhea kind of respects her, that, that the implication that Nan does like, and then to have that all be in the service of tearing her further down. It's just like, that's cruel. Like that's, that's really nasty. And, and, and she lets, and she betrays some emotion when she finds out, you know, she gets teary and it's rare that we see, um, a lot of these characters react that nakedly to something. Um, but like, I, I think, you know, someone in her position couldn't help it because like, that's just like the whole body, you know, the, the entire floor fell out from underneath her. Yeah. So I, um, I have a working theory. <laughs> I know, and Succession is not a show we should like make fan predictions about, but here's my, my new theory, which is that, uh, it's not based on spoilers. Um, is that season one is about the destruction, the fall of Kendall Roy. Mm-hmm. And if season two is like the rise and fall of Shiv Roy, possibly. Mm. Um, and then maybe Roman ends up in a strength position. And then season three is about the destruction of Roman. Um, and then maybe by well, season four, Connor is president and right. then we have to, yeah. to tear Connor down. Yeah. So I mean, like if, if, you know, I think it's pretty evident that if there is like a figure that this season is centered on, or at least a child that the season is centered on, it's, it's Shiv. She's going through the most in terms of, um, being drawn back into the fold and trying to maintain her, her freedom and her identity while 
just giving her father all the power that he wanted over her in the end, which, you know, so far at least. Can I make a reach, like an allegorical reach? I wonder if maybe this is like Jesse Armstrong and the other writers giving a warning to Democrat politicians about cozying up to corporate money. Because Ooh. Shim has, Shiv has betrayed her stated principles just to, you know, kind of like get closer to power and it's completely blown up in her face, you know? Oh so goodness. I wonder if almost they're like Elizabeth Warren, whoever else, don't you take those big donations, you know, because yeah. it comes with strings attached and they can just rip you right down to the, to, you know, to the studs. So I don't know. Maybe that's kind of what's happening here. Oh, I like it. Um, all right. So let us end with our status boy, Ugh. uh, Kendall Roy. Yeah. I, I mean, like, I, sh- I just, I have to say, like, one of my favorite things that Succession does is when Jeremy Strong does his little sad boy face, which he does a lot of in this episode. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I saw uh, someone on Twitter just uh, for a couple weeks ago, and I, I forgive me, I forget who it was and exactly the wording, but they basically were just, it was kind of like, you know, a 280 character appreciation of just how expressive Jeremy Strong can be while saying nothing, you know? Yes, and, and it's, yeah. it's so powerful. And I think that the scene, at the house when at these, you know, I mean, Logan, of course, pulls up and it's a pretty modest home and he goes, Ugh, look at this place. And then, you know, Kendall sees it in such a different way. Yes, there is a bit of snobby pity there. Like, look how quaint this is. But he realizes that, like, it was at least full of life and, you know, to be oh, corny, yeah. full of love. And I just think that scene is the single most devastating scene this show has done. Well, he's just in the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. Just looking yeah. at the little like pattern on the wall and looking at these, you know, just simple little photos and having no idea what to even do with his body. You know, he's standing so awkwardly. He sits so awkwardly. Like he just, he just knows that not only he, he just sort of not only socially doesn't belong there, but kind of cosmically doesn't. Right. And then, and then the, the guilt that washes over him in terms of like, if he wants to take responsibility for what happened, um, you know, he, he destroyed, he ripped out the heart of this family, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. by perhaps being involved or definitely being involved at least in, in their son's death. So, um, and then he solves it or he will not solves it, but he addresses it then in the crassest way he could of course. just dumping money through their front door in the middle of the night. Like as if the that would do any way he could, yeah. you know, throw some money at it. Um, something to note about Logan, uh, and his reaction to their home though, is, you know, this idea that like Logan, did not come from money, you know? So, you know, him being disgusted by their home is, you know, that sort of like self critique, that self hate sort of thing. Um, in theory, but then Uh, he turns it around and I know he's trying to insult Kendall. He, you know, he's, he starts, you know, banging on about like, well, you know, what do we do? We provide some, some entertainment, some news that doesn't talk down to them. You know, they're good people, salt of the earth kind of thing. You know, he's sort of like, I think that he, he scoffs at the home in a way out of disgust of like, why haven't these people climbed out of the state of their station? But then later, like, wants to reassert his, his appreciation for the working man, which is something that people, well, on both sides, but really a lot of the times, you know, on the conservative end of things, like really tend to kind of act as if they who are fabulously wealthy and completely out of touch, like somehow have some better understanding of, of the working class than, you know, people who actually express more compassion do. Yeah. And what he says right before that about their son and his drug use and like, you know, what can you do when you're the parent of a kid who uses drugs? Like all of Mm -hmm. it's just so evil, so evil. Um, but we do have, I mean, some, some points in Kendall's favor, I guess, is that, um, 
Oh, we should mention, I mean, this episode opens beautifully with Jeremy Strong, uh, you know, being confused as to how to take a dick pic. Like that's a, mm-hmm. that's a tremendous opening to this episode that, that I don't want to let go by. Um, he's still, you know, he's, he's still in contact with Naomi, which is nice to be like her, I think, even though, you know, maybe they indulge each other's bad habits in a certain regard, but then he like drops her, uh, to do this thing with his father. Right. He cancels plans with her to do yeah. this thing. And, um, I mean, he has no other choice on the one hand, but on the other hand, um, I have questions about his, his future with anyone. If, if, uh, Logan is able to get him to, you know, sort of abandon plays in this way. Um, well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing is yeah. I think this, this episode really brilliantly offsets the goofiness of him trying to take the dick pic, having a little fun, laughing about it. And then he has a, you know, a nice night with her and Naomi, right? Um, he yeah. has a nice night with her. And then what are they going to do that day? They're going to go to the zoo. So he's just being sort of light and silly and then it just get, he just gets, you know, crashes back down to earth, uh, in, in the, you know, it's, it's a, it's an appropriately cruel framing, I think, for that. Yeah. You don't get to have this. You, I think he says something like, we're apparently we're like a Simon and Garfunkel song or whatever. It's like, Mm -hmm. no, you don't get to have that. That's not for you. (laughs) Terrible, painful, drunken nights where you shove a pile of money into someone's mailbox and then your mother doesn't talk to you. I mean, like we should, so we should talk about the way that, that this all ends. We already talked about the fact that, that Caroline is gone for breakfast by the time breakfast rolls around. Um, but the phrasing of her note, which is something like, I have quite a lot to do. Like, basically, mm-hmm. like, sorry if I miss you leaving. I have quite a lot to do. And it's a very much like, here's your hat. What's your hurry sort of thing. It's like, um, feel free to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't have any plans to see you. After saying, we'll talk about it in the morning over eggs. It's so cruel. And you just have, you have Roman reacting to it and Kendall emphatically not reacting to it. But as you say, Jeremy Strong could do so much with a non-reaction. So, um, yeah, it's, I, I love, I love so many performances on this show, but I like, I am forever dazzled by Jeremy Strong on the show. So yeah, it's interesting when I went back and reread my review, I reviewed the first season. I think Sonya reviewed it the second um, and, um, I really didn't know what to make of the show at the time. I did like it though, but I, saw if, but I, I kind of singled out Jeremy Strong as being like having the least fun or, you know, he had the least to play because he kind of had to be the straight man. And I totally disagree with myself, you know, <laughs> and now that we're at this point in the show, I think that there is so much going on there, obviously. And it's not just because of this sort of this, you know, particular tragedy, um, and, and guilt and all that, but there's just, I don't know, he's just doing a lot. And I think in, in a show, who's that's full of performances i love but a lot of them are a little flashier i I really appreciate that that strong keeps things in check while also still doing a lot yeah i think um the first i think hbo must have sent out probably for maybe six episodes of the first season to have you all review and those episodes are actually not the best showcase for the series and um, and that's fine because, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of great shows have even bumpier first seasons. I don't think there's anything, uh, wrong with the first four episodes not being the most dazzling. But I think when you don't understand what you're watching, I think that's the main mm-hmm. problem with those first four episodes. You don't understand what you're watching. And when you rewatch it, um, which I did, uh, you know, in advance of season two, I was like, Oh, I'm immediately in. It doesn't take those four episodes to warm me up. I'm immediately in. And I immediately care about Kendall, who's like, 
listening to rap to get hyped to go into a business meeting and you're like this ridiculous person. Um, you know, and so, yeah, you just need that context. It's just not there from the start, which, you know, I'm not going to knock them too hard for the second season has been such a, such a joy. All right. Well, that is it for this episode of still watching succession. Richard, where can people find you until we're back for episode eight? I think I'm going to go to London and see some theater. Uh, yeah, I'll be tweeting at Rylas and writing at VF.com. We got a lot of like Emmys and stuff coverage coming up. Uh, Joanna, where will you be? Um, I will just be making a simple meal of pigeon with a little feather and shot inside of it you know mind, mind the <laughs> shot um otherwise you can find me at vanity fair um i am at fantastic fest in austin so i'll be talking about some weird and wacky genre films here um and also we will be covering the emmys obviously which you know by the time you're listening to this succession may have who knows upset oh, game of yeah. thrones we don't know we don't who know knows? Um, but I'm hoping they at least win the, the writing at me. I think yeah. it really deserves it. So, um, here's hoping that by the time you hear this, it will be Emmy Award winner, Jesse Armstrong, uh, in succession. And we will see you all next week. Come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.